Welcome to a new audio feature of The Legacy of John Williams. I'm your host, Maurizio Caschetto, editor of The Legacy of John Williams. Today, I'm honored to present an exclusive interview with composer, conductor and orchestrator Conrad Pope one of the most consummate and talented professionals of the Hollywood film music industry. In the last three decades, Conrad worked with many great film composers, including James Horner, Howard Shore, James Newton Howard, Alan Silvestri, Danny Elfman and Alexander Spla, orchestrating some of these composers' most successful film scores. Pope is also a fine composer and wrote many film scores. He collaborated with John Williams as orchestrator from the 1990s until the first decade of the 2000s, working on some of Williams' most popular scores, including the Star Wars prequel trilogy and the Harry Potter films. In this interview, Conrad offers a very unique and personal insight about his working relationship with John Williams, his views on the maestro's music, and his life as musician in the highly competitive and demanding environment of the Hollywood film industry. So stay with us for a very engaging talk with Conrad Pope. here today. Well, it's my great pleasure. I, there, there are plenty of uh, better people, but uh, many of them are dead, to paraphrase another <laughs> quote of, uh, of John Williams. But I think that it's important because I think John is the, um, as I, uh, I gave some talks before his uh, L.A. Philharmonic outing with uh, Dudamel, and like I told the audience there, is that a film composer is another kind of very special American invention. And, uh, as, and something that we're getting used to, but in fact, we never even accepted for a very long time. Here. And John is the perfect fusion of where Broadway and uh, Sunset meet in terms of Hollywood and Vine and the, all the great American traditions from jazz to film to even our way of uh, adopting classical music is all foot filtered through John Williams. He's such a focal figure for so much of the creative energy, I would say, of the 20th century. And it's such a culminating figure that it's great that you're looking into it and get it in all in one place, because I wouldn't like that ever to be forgotten. In a nutshell, you are just you know summed up very nicely a lot of things which I'm I'd love to talk with you a little bit more expansively in, in the course of our talk. So, but uh, first of all, I'd like to start with a little bit of background information about yourself, so about your career in music and. When did you start uh, and how was your study path and how you ended up working in the Hollywood film industry? It's, uh, I would say that 
I'm pretty typical of someone uh, of, of my generation, at least that I know out here in Hollywood. You know, I started reasonably young. I was an only child. My grandmother sort of supported um, music lessons, and I, she got me a little violin when I guess I was about four years old. And um, in frustration, I think I broke the thing at, uh, when I was six. And so there were music lessons starting around, um, I'd say, uh, seriously, or I became around seven after the violin was busted. And um, so I studied music, and I would say around the age of 10, I started trying to write some music. And it was a very typical course. I mean, I, I studied uh, piano, basically, and then uh, in public school, uh, I knew I wanted to be a composer. And back then, I, the, I grew up traveling around because uh, my father was um, a traveling man, as they say. And so what I did was that uh, I, start, I studied piano, but in public school, I started to make a point of playing every instrument. I played something from every um, instrumental group because I knew that I was going to want to be a composer. And in those days, what I knew about composers, I thought, orchestration, who knew, what's that? that that's just something <laughs> you do. That's not a profession. That's a part of a profession. Yeah. And so I, I managed to play um, uh, bassoon, baritone sax, um, uh, trombone and violin and all in school and and in violin the, the the joke i tell is the teacher said do you love music i said yes he said uh, put the violin down i didn't tell him that <laughs> but it was basically just to learn the mechanics and have some yeah. idea how to write from there uh, i was interested in jazz I, in high school i had a jazz band and uh, with a bunch of guys and we didn't know what we were doing but uh, I was drawn, uh, I, want, I knew that that was part of what I was interested in studying. And so I went to the New England Conservatory where I studied with Gunther Schuller, one of the most remarkable musicians I've ever met in my life. And I've met a, a number of remarkable musicians. And so I studied at the New England Conservatory of Music and uh, studied composition and uh, graduated there and went to Tanglewood and had Leonard Bernstein Fellowship, took uh, classes with, uh, with, with Lenny and Bruno Moderna and various wow. people. Study conducting with Moderna. Fantastic. Uh, well, you know, it's it was those kinds of days. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, so, and so, and then I, um, I managed to have a Fulbright uh, fellowship to uh, study at the Hochschule in Munich, and I studied at the Hochschule in Munich, hmm. and then um, I came back um, uh, from my Fulbright and went um, briefly for a graduate degree because, uh, as I tell people, when I went to Munich, they said, well, what are you going to do with this marvelous education we're going to give you? Mm. Uh, being the American kid I was, I said, well, I, I don't know, teach, because that seemed to be the only thing that people interested in classical music could do in those days. And they said, oh, no, no, you'll become a, f a free artist, a freier Kunstler. And then they would <laughs> assign me to, a, to a, a radio station, and I would write music, and it all sounded all great to me. And so I came back, I went to Princeton University, but briefly. The university system wasn't that good for me. I'd grown up basically here in California. My parents had friends. I came out, they said, you should meet a music editor. I met a music editor. I didn't think that there was anything I should be doing in, or I could be doing in uh, Hollywood because in those days, um, I never kidded myself. I, you know, you listen to John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Dave Grusin. Elmer Bernstein. I just thought, well, you know, I can't do any of that, but maybe, but they said, oh, they need all kinds of people for all kinds of things. And so, uh, in a nutshell, that's how I ended up out here. I went from being sort of a, uh, a guy that uh, studied, uh, you know, my performance minor was in jazz and stuff at the conservatory and blah, blah, blah. 
I went from being sort of a serious guy to coming out here, and I've been very lucky. I started orchestrating. You know, you would be assigned somebody that uh, one of my first jobs was they would give you a cassette. The guy was playing guitar, and I would have the, his cassette of him playing guitar, and I'd have to transcribe that. I started working with uh, Richard Gibbs very early on, uh, doing transcribing MIDI, as a friend of mine said, before there was MIDI, because in those days, in the late 80s, um, uh, Gibbs was working uh, with all of his uh, synths and whatnot, but all you would output is really a cassette tape. And this is how I, I got into the business. And once I got into it, I realized, well, I, it, it, because, you know, you, when, you, when you're confronted with such talent as, say, somebody like John Williams or Jerry Goldsmith or something, you keep going, well, is there really a place for me in any of this? Because, you know, I've, I, you know I'd like to compose, but I don't compose at that level. And I, I just thought, well, yeah, I, I can do what I'm doing and maybe go ahead. And I, and I tried to advance my career as a composer, but I'll, I'll just simply say I was doing fairly well for myself as mm. a composer when I was unknown. And then once I became sort of the lead orchestrator for John on uh, Harry Potter because of various circumstances, it was like, oh, Conrad's an orchestrator. That's it. But you actually, uh, your first encounter with the music of John Williams was before, actually, so... But I can tell you from the outset is that the real story was I started orchestrating. I was doing the thing with Richard Gibbs and God, there was another guy, Richard Stone. Uh, at that particular time, for the first three years I was in Hollywood, I was orchestrating and doing the sound alikes and takedowns. But one time when I was getting my assignment, I would meet a guy I was working for at a filling station on Ventura Boulevard at 3 a.m. Uh, he called me at 2 a.m. And he said, can you come and help me? And I said, well, tomorrow morning. He said, I was thinking right now. And I went over to his place, and I was sitting there doing a big band chart at 3.30 in the morning at his kitchen table doing bassy voicings going up and down with this. And then that was the first time I ever met Bill Ross. Bill Ross showed up um, at 7 a.m., and he was assigned. He actually got to use the DX7 uh, <laughs> or whatever it was. He had a keyboard. I, yeah, the, well, the Yamaha, uh, yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons I got as far as I did when I first came here was that I could sit at a table and write music without a piano. And so that was uh, very helpful. My first job was actually doing about five minutes of music between 2 p.m. and 8 p.m. Wow. At, at a copyist table. That's how, that's how I got started here in this business. But this is all by way of saying, yeah, um, I decided uh, in those three years I kept thinking, John Williams, as a, for instance, because even before I knew John Williams, I knew who he was, I kept thinking, John Williams isn't handing off music at 3 o'clock in the morning at a gas station mm. in Ventura. <laughs> and so I have to get out of this. And so as I always describe it, I started at the bottom of the bottom, worked my way up to the top of the bottom, and then realized I had to get somewhere where I could get into to at least the bottom of the top. And the way that that happened was that after I did this thing with Richard Stone and had orchestrated this this movie and uh, some stuff, I sent these cassettes around. And I sent out like 400 postcards. In those days, you didn't have email or anything. And so uh, one week, uh, when I was about to give up, because it's pretty discouraging, because uh, like I say, how does Hollywood tell you no? They keep saying yes to you, but they do nothing for you. And so what happened was is that um, the... I sent my stuff off, and I would send out these little cards. And I know that no one ever wants to say no to anyone. Mm. And so the card would say, yes, please send demo tape at this time. <laughs> and then, I, and then, then the other said, no, 
no demo tape at this time, making people feel like they were actually oh, it's still okay and that yeah. they didn't have they could let me down easily. Okay. And so, and so one day um, I get a call and I'd sent it out to uh, Arthur Morton, who was Jerry Goldsmith's orchestra at the time, and I was so surprised he called me back. And he said, "Well, son, it seems like um, you know how to push some notes around." And and he said, "I don't I don't know what I can tell you about being a a composer." He said, but I can tell you some stuff about being an orchestra. Mm-hmm. Arthur called up Joanne Kane. And uh, Joanne Kane, he said, you know, we got this kid here. Would you have lunch with him? She said, sure. And so I went over to her office on the 20th Century Fox lot, where John Williams famously worked and was working even in those days. And she didn't take me to lunch. Instead, she said, we have this movie we're doing called uh, Mountains of the Moon with a score by Michael Small. Yeah. Will you proofread these parts? And so I got the thing, and she sat me down, and I went through, and I found all these mistakes. And I corrected things, and I said and suggested other orchestrations, and she said, can you come on the, back to me? On the, on the full score? That's right. Okay. Uh, for, he, had a, he had a very fine um, orchestrator at the time. But these are massive projects. I mean, I could yeah. go into it. But in any case, that's when I got the job at Joanne's. And I remember thinking, well, now I'm at the bottom of the uh, top. And that she hired me to do what I've been doing, tran- transcriptions and sound-alikes. Or I did sound-alikes of all kinds of rock and roll things for MGM TV pictures at that time. It was being run by Richard Kaufman. And then I would sit there and do arrangements for John on various source music and stuff uh, through the office. And that's how I got started with John Williams, basically. And also, my career started to build from that particular thing. That Because in those days, maybe the office at Joanne Kane's was maybe five copyists. Mm. And you would have to understand that these were all gentlemen, sort of like my father-in-law, um, who had been uh, members of the big band era. Yeah, They were performers. They weren't composers. Yeah. They weren't people that had gone to USC and gotten yeah. a master's degree in composition then yeah. came to work. And so it was quite an education because these older men would help you a great deal and explain the, old pa- the past, how people would work. And uh, that's basically uh, how I got started. And then um, what happened was, is that uh, in another sort of odd coincidence, Herb Spencer was um, starting to sort of withdraw, was getting a little bit fainter. And, and so John Neufeld came in to start orchestrating for Williams at that time. This is late 80s. Because I, I, actually there, there was an audition process during, I think, for who was going to be John's guy. Um, with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah, the third one. And so then he became basically her, he learned the business from her. as much of my story as 
probably have told you more than I told anybody. But, uh, <laughs> but it's okay. It's, okay, good. Because I, I could go on for a while. It's okay. I like I like to talk with people not just about John Williams, but also about their personal musicianship, which is a very important. So uh, you became John's leading orchestrator uh, together with John Neufeld. Uh, and so you worked with him several years throughout the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s. So at that point, John was already, of course, a household name and so very famous. So did you have to learn some kind of method or practice to work for him? Um, I would say that, you know, the, the, one of the methods is that um, it's just uh, be smart. I mean, the reason you work for him is like a, everybody goes. Um, John Williams is a copying job. Anybody mm -hmm. can do this. Okay, uh, with the with the sketches, and I think a lot of people can. That's it's all fine. I will tell you this is that I found that uh, in those decades when I was working for, uh, say, Hans, uh, when I was working for his team and Bruce Fowler, that was more of a copying job because, believe it or not, it would be uh, we'd get the um, MIDI sketches, and the and the rule that they sat down is it's copy exactly what you see, exactly where you see it, even though the flutes might be wrong or something. Uh, well. In other words, is that uh, I tried to look at it acoustically. Now, then what I brought, say, w working for John is that I've said is that, yes, it's a copying job, but you have to know what to copy. Hmm. And you also have to know when, uh, when maybe it's going to be two flutes and not one, or five woodwinds and not three, and these kinds of things. I mean, um, uh, because it was, and certainly Neufeld and I, and I would say that Neufeld was his lead orchestrator. I never viewed myself as being his lead orchestrator, except by default. Uh, again, with John, once you realize that even with Neufeld, who had played bass clarinet on uh, Jaws, had gone all the way back to, um, I mean, Neufeld's a fascinating character because I, the story I always tell with Andre Previn and John is that um, the first time John played um, lead clarinet, he was a teenager. His father had been the concertmaster of the Universal Orchestra, which he okay. may have been. And his mother had been the pianist that would go and play Dmitry Tiomkin's themes. So in any case, John never went to music school, but was a, a virtuoso clarinetist and started playing as a teenager. And he just said about My Fair Lady, he just remembered the first time he was a clarinet soloist, he looked out and saw well, and he thought, oh my God. And, but he looked up, and there was uh, Andre Previn smiling at him and inviting him to play. And it said, seeing that the conductor was engaged, because there's this conductor thing of have the score in your head, not your head in the score, so that you can always look at people and encourage them. He was, he was there. And then John lost his, the feeling in his fingers. And for clarinet, you have to be able to have the pads of your fingers. That's yeah. very important. So once that happened, he could no longer play clarinet. So that's how John became an orchestrator. Mm. He came from the band into helping John, and John had known him from since he was a little kid. And so this is all by way of saying, John's major people in his life are all dead. And so all of us that showed up once he was the big shot and all this stuff, uh, it's more my wife's Uncle Bob, as we call it, Uncle Bob thing. He was the guitarist. Uh, in uh, the Henry Mancini rhythm section. He and John were best of friends in the 50s. And in fact, John and his, and Barbara, uh, John's wife, yeah. and the kids would go uh, over to Bob's, and they would make music together and all this stuff. And Bob and John are sort of similar in that I always say that generation, sort of like my parents' generation, they got into music to make a living and not a killing. And, and Uncle Bob, uh, you know, like his, uh, 
he started playing bass when he was very young, but joined Tommy Dorsey again when he was like 17 years old. And by the time he was in his 20s, he was in the MGM Orchestra with Johnny Green and um, was with, also with Victor Young on uh, Around the World in 80 Days with, with Henry Mancini on Everything New Hank Extraordinarily Well. Yeah. And in fact, when um, Bob turned 90, uh, he gave a concert at Fatella's, which is a club here in Los Angeles, and there was this empty table in the back that was reserved. And John Williams came and sat down and listened to Bob and it was all the old Mancini people. You had Dick Nash wow. and Arnie Agelson and John came. And at the end of it, uh, he went up to Bob after Bob played. And uh, John said, Bob, your, your fingers, they're so nimble. You, you <laughs> must practice every day. <laughs> to, to which uh, Bob responded. He said, John, the only thing I do every day is make two martinis. <laughs> but mind you, this is, this is Bob was the guy that got Nelson Riddle his first job arranging out of the Merchant Marine with the Bob Crosby Orchestra because that's what Bob was. <laughs> Bob and Nelson were extraordinarily close friends. Nelson, Billy May, all these people, yeah. they formed a, a, a unit of, this was a, a community yes. of great musicians. that there is a, a red line that connects me to the, to the next thing I want to ask you about uh, you know, the legacy that John took up from the great orchestrators of the MGM era. You know, he, he worked with Herb Spencer and Sandy Carriage and Arthur Morton. They all came from the great school of orchestration from the 1940s and 50s of studios. So that was a very creative environment. And also, I think that in later years, when he started working at Universal for the television arm, where he was working with Jerry Goldsmith and Quincy Jones and Harry Mancini or Dave Grusin. And so that feeling of communal experience, how important is for, for, for what John became after that? Well, I, I'll give you a quick story that um, has to do with, I think, the, maybe the first time I worked for Danny Elfman. This will give you a sense of the community. Uh, is the purpose of the story is uh, they called me up and they said uh, they needed help on Flubber which was a Disney film mm -hmm. and um, they said would you do it and I said what, what does it pay and they said told me I said yeah sure I'll do it now at the same time before they called me they called up Sandy Courage and Sandy's response and this is what's very telling and I'll explain it in a second to, to your thing Sandy said Danny Elfman I cannot work for Danny Elfman I do not know him. So this is all by way of that Hollywood for people like John, Sandy, Arthur. All the, It was a very small community. It still is a pretty small community, actually, much on the inside. But all these people like Sandy, uh, and John tells this story and uh, told it at, uh, at Sandy's uh, memorial, is that um, Sandy basically got John started, which is that... Um, they were doing some like it hot and they needed a pianist to improvise and stuff as Marilyn Monroe was coming down their thing. And they said, 
well, who's good? And they said, well, this guy, this kid, uh, uh, John T., or uh, Johnny, and the, the, you know, or Curly, as he was known, because he had that red hair, as you probably know. And so they brought him in, and he was really good. And, and the thing is that he, he nailed it. And so then uh, Sandy said he took a bet, and he said, and all, Arthur told me this, too, is that he said when he met John, he said, look, you're going to make more money with a pencil than playing piano. Sandy then said, well, can you do this? And then he got him in with uh, Adolf Deutsch, and he got him the first cues, like, on the um, the apartment. I even saw at one point we were doing a resurrection of the sound of music over at Fox, and we had to go through some scores. And I found a score in that that was, I think, what part of John's handiwork because everybody would pitch in in those days. And even when I did Benjamin Button, we resurrected, I think, from Carousel, one of the the dance scene, and and that was Herb Spencer's um, uh, orchestration of that particular thing of um, that that we did. But you can see all of Herb's tricks. And this is all by way of going back to, there's also the famous story of John going over to Andre Previn's house at 11 o'clock at night, if you know this one, no. and knocking on the door and saying, I was told this by Neufeld. <laughs> but, but these guys are pretty, uh, pretty tight-lipped. John going, oh, how do you do this? And you would share things and you would kibitz. And in fact, and before, I think it's, it's hard for people to imagine today when we have these demos and all these synths and all this stuff that's going on. You can take a, a look at uh, Empire of the Sun with the Herb, Herb Spencer, and you can see that the bottom of the woodwinds are being carried just by a single core on play, but in the right register with the right amount of power. There are these things that people would talk to one another and you'd get these various hints and tips from one another because we were all experimenting. Yeah. That's why um, orchestration for the film is not that you'll see that we don't do exactly what Rimsky says. And also for film, we're talking about things that have to do with instrumental color, but also how that sits with dialogue and not obscure. Yeah. And, uh, and so there was this thing that everyone would help you and we would talk. I mean, you would talk endlessly. Mm. about things because it was what you could imagine and hear and the only day that you really heard it was that day that it came down on the stage this goes back to Friedhofer and um, and Eddie Powell Eddie Powell's a name that I would also encourage to always link with this because he was um, Alfred Newman's orchestrator and they basically took a lot of the Broadway people and just brought them out here because Herb came from Broadway he was one of um, Eddie's guys Arthur Morton actually came out here to be a songwriter, and that didn't work for him. 
And so he got a couple of boys at Bar Talk, and he decided that, again, it's kind of like me. You need to make a living, and if you have a skill, that can do that. But Sandy, um, boy, he was, uh, he was in the Air Force, or the Army Air Force. In California, there's this place called Marchfield, which was the air base, and that's where Sandy was. That, that's where they generated all the radio programs that's, that Sandy worked on. And John was actually stationed there, too, during the Korean War. And so that was the musical place where all these guys went and uh, common background. I think that this experience that John had working for these people as first as pianist and then as orchestrator and then as composer later, I think that he talked about uh, Conrad Salinger being one of his mentors as well. And I think that is very important. And that is not something very much talked to, actually, about the influence Salinger had on Williams. Oh, well, I think that, yes, I think, but uh, John is very openly. I mean, and the thing is that Salinger, and, and again, these are stories that are kind of handed down, and, uh, you know, it's like the man who shot Liberty Balance, yeah. uh, you know. <laughs> print the legend. I'd rather, yeah. I'd rather yeah. print the legend yeah. than know the fact. Yeah. <laughs> but but Salinger uh, supposedly did uh, work with Ravel. It, it had studied with Ravel, and that was one of his calling cards here. And and he also, the, the textures and the harmonies, I mean, it's also... Uh, you know, there's a whole thing to sort of talk about. Uh, almost anyone can um, orchestrate a major or minor chord. Mm. And minor chord's a problem. And, and if you're interested, I'll tell you why. But when you had these sort of rich harmonies of ninths, thirteenth chords, all this flowing. Mm. And like I tell people, uh, what most people think of as orchestration is really instrumentation. Mm. The range of this and that and how you balance these instruments and blah, blah, blah. Orchestration is really what you write, and the figurations that live in those instruments and make those instruments come alive. Yes. And it's the character of the instruments, and that the music is true to the character of the instruments and the environment that they're going in. That's really great orchestration. A lot of people can voice a chord, but few people can make that chord come alive in every instrument that's playing. Mm -hmm. And that's John's genius. The music's always perfect for the instrument and the line. And he always, and each line that he does, and you can see this in the sketch, everybody participates in the climax. In other words, is that that's going to be the climax for that instrument's uh, part, and its thing when it gets there, and everything else. And there's a way of thinking about music that I think it's very hard that if you're just sort of inputting the, the overall shape, it's hard to understand the logic behind the voice leading unless you uh, write it like he does. I was or was made as early 2000s. One composer I was working for said, "Well, you know, John didn't have the same kind of competition we have today." And I said, "I told him, I said, I know he was only competing with Bernard Herrmann, Dmitri Tiomkin, you know, because 
Harry Lojewski told me that uh, they, they sent uh, John over to watch um, Jerry's score, but he was going to do a Western, and so MGM had uh, John go and observe Jerry Goldsmith of how Jerry was scoring Westerns in those days, okay? There, you know, so John had a lot of competition, and it's amazing the drive and the focus that got him out of the band because he started, you know, he was listening to Claude Thornhill, for God's sakes, uh, back when he was a kid. And his harmonic sense is so derived from all those experiments, I would say, in jazz and substitute chords and all this kind of But yeah, those days, there's a lot to talk about. And then well, Skip Martin was also one of these uh, orchestrators that's now forgotten out of MGM. Yes, yes. And Al Woodbury. Al Woodbury, um, yes. Angela Morley also was there, too. Oh, yes, Angela. Well, yeah. Angela, I'm not sure. That, I think Angela came later. Um, okay. You know, because the, um, the real heyday for all this music is really the 50s. And then the 60s was the uh, culmination of all the musicals, and then they started to die. And so by the 70s, this, the pop song had started to take over again, and then yes. John suddenly resurrected everybody with Star Wars. That's the common chronology that I know of. But that said, you know, you have to think that here's John all at the same time being uh, the musical director for Frankie, uh, Frankie Lane. Yeah, I think he did a couple of records with him, yes. Yeah, well, yeah, and he was on the road with him. I mean, I think even to, uh, to Las Vegas. And so when you realize that a commercial musician, from John's perspective, in those days, you know, there was Leonard Bernstein and Aaron Copeland mm -hmm. and Elliot Carter, I guess, was emerging, and all these people. Um, and so to be a, a commercial guy uh, like John was, and mainly like I've spent most of my life, is to be involved with all these kinds of music that isn't particularly glamorous. Yeah. But it all has to be effective. And it's something about a creative life that's formed, whether you're playing piano, orchestrating, or composing, with music that has to serve a purpose and, and touch people. That is a different kind of train, different kind of mindset. And that's what's amazing about John. Yeah, I think that there is a... I, I was talking about the same thing with Dirk Brosset. We were talking about Aaron Copeland and Leonard Bernstein and John Williams. And I suggested that those three names are probably three main figures in three different times in American music that define, the. we can say, the populist side of the American vernacular in music. In fact, I think that Appalachian Spring by Copeland, uh, West Side Story by Bernstein, and Star Wars by John Williams are probably the three greatest symphonic populist, so to speak, works uh, of the 20th century in American music. Oh, I, I think, uh, and that's, I think that's eminently true. When I first, I, I teach every summer and uh, outside of Vienna, because uh, I went to school in Munich. And I just thought, oh, the guy asked me. And so the first time I went there, they used to say when I was growing up, music is the universal language. Mm -hmm. And I thought, well, really? I mean, Mozart and Indian music, is that, that's so universal, isn't it? I thought, I thought, no, come on. But I will say this, is that when I went to Vienna, I had 64 students from 24 countries. And I will say this, is that now I think film music, and thank largely to John Williams, this is this is the radical thesis of mine. Okay, okay. It's just it's just as uh, we're becoming a smaller globe. There now is a kind of universal musical rhetoric that movies have actually spread and has invited people in. Because it's amazing to me that I can find somebody from Singapore and uh, this one this one kid that's a genius, I think, uh, from uh, Norway, and they both they both write perfect John Williams. 
And it's really amazing because it speaks. And, and the funny thing about Hollywood is that everybody want, that composes wants to compose like John Williams, and a lot of people can, frankly. But no one wants it. You know, what's funny is that this is what musicians want to give back to the world because they hear it. And, and directors, they don't want it. So go, you go figure. But, um, <laughs> but, I, but again, what you were saying about Copeland, Bernstein, and John... And, you know, and, th and threaded through that whole thing is, is also uh, the feeding of the European uh, concert tradition into film. Because, like I've said, just like in the Middle Ages, um, uh, literacy was protected by monks. The way music uh, was protected by Hollywood, because after the, because the radical stuff that happened after World War II, with uh, complete serialization, this sort of deconstruction of all music... Yeah into a musical Ikea store. Hollywood actually was a place where all the good bits of Bartok, Stravinsky, Debussy, Ravel, the lessons from all that music were learned and, and put into Hollywood, and that's where it was preserved. And that's what's been interesting is to see how once the serial uh, misstep, like in the 70s, was responded to by Reich and Glass, and Adams, and the new simplicity that sort of came in, and the yeah. neo-romanticism. And it wasn't until, I'd say, until just recently, um, now film music has been accepted into the concert hall. In fact, it might save the orchestra. Becoming Canaan now, and but I think there is still a lot to do in that sense because I think that sure. probably we we are still uh, looking at the popular side. You know, if the movie is popular, then we can accept the music in some way. Yeah. Of course, John has done lots of incredible music for greatly successful movies, but if we look, for example, at Jerry Goldsmith's career, he wrote such incredible scores for even for forgettable movies that. I think that nowadays would be the right time to to get the, that music out of those movies, forgettable movies, and try to, to understand it better. Well, I, I agree, and I think Robert Townsend's trying to do that. And But you also bring up another thing, is that when people talk to me, they, I go, well, you think, let me praise John Williams in more ways than you can imagine. <laughs> um, he's a genius composer, but don't attribute his great success to him being a genius composer. Hmm. Once you understand that part of his success is really the, how dynamic a personality he is. Also, he knows how to read people. That's a kind of genius. The other kind of genius is uh, related story that it has to do with, uh, one can say this about Hans Zimmer. 
John, uh, when we were doing um, Born on the Fourth of July, Born on the Fourth of July has this queue that opens that's very scary and it's got the high clusters and it's very tense and the little kids are playing war. So after that was first out, I remember um, Oliver Stone said, my God, I've got Jaws. This is just fantastic, fantastic. And so they took the first break and John comes into the booth at Fox and there's Oliver Stone. And uh, John said, how do you think it's going? And he goes, fine. Yeah, and he goes, God, I, I just love the energy. And I, and, uh, and so John turns to uh, his music editor and he says, well, to go with the third take and the fourth take. And then Stone jumps in and says, I like the first take. And John said, I know, it's, but I think we got a few things better. Then Stone said, I like the first take. I like its energy, looking at John. And John then said, Kenny, would you please make a note that at the dub, let's look at the first take and we'll decide there. And rather than, this is again genius, right? Because he knows that Stone politically has to win this battle. He knows right now it's only about this guy winning the battle. Say anything to shut him up because he knows him enough that it's going to be forgotten by the time it gets to the dub. I can't tell you how many people would not would be so stupid as to go like, I disagree. Let me explain to you, Mr. Director, yeah. why you're <laughs> stupid and I'm smart. Okay. Okay. And again, this is all by way of saying, I know composers like that that had careers and don't. So John Williams is a genius on that level. At the next level is that John is somebody that's respectful of people. Like when I often talk at USC, they they sit there, they go like, what did you learn from John Williams? I always cite, uh, I think it's Aristotle, character is destiny. And, that, and that's certainly um, what I've learned from John, and that's the most important thing, is that Working for John as an orchestrator after being in chaos, you have to understand there's some composers that the way how they make you work is that they create an aura of chaos. They're procrastinators. They don't get things done. When they do get things done, it's a big mess. It's all over the place. There are gaps. There are holes. And so you as an orchestrator, this is why being an orchestrator, as a friend of mine once said, it's anything you say yes to. So you have people that need help and that control you by being chaotic. Because like I've said, they, what they do is they try, it, it, that's working on a film is like being in a mine, you know, digging under yeah. and having a cave in. Yeah. <laughs> and suddenly water's rushing in. Okay. And it's dark and you don't know which way to go. And so you have to just always be... And this is how some composers work. What I liked about John Williams, my work would arrive on Monday for the week. And I could control my, and then my work would be turned in next Monday and i get an all new work. Okay. John is extraordinarily focused and disciplined and he makes this a job. And what's hard about being in this job is that you commit to everything you do that day. And it's like performing, right? It's yes. like going on the stage, you sit down, you play the recital, and those wrong notes, they're going to hear them. And it's only going to be that one time, and you don't get to do it again. And so that's how John is, is that no second takes him, certainly. Is that it. So he's like totally focused for those six hours he's composing. I was told, you know, these days is that he goes basically at nine to three and then plays golf. <laughs> but a minute and a half a day, no matter what. Yeah.
And so that's what I love about working for him because it's very professional. See, for me, like if you're an orchestrator, um, what composers tend to go is that, isn't this an exciting adventure for you? And you sort of go, no, uh, it's a job for me. And, um, and the more that you make me do your job that you don't do, the more you're kind of exploiting me or you're not realizing you're cheating yourself or you're doing that. I mean, again, um, and John, I just always admire because he does his job. A quick story that I've told, and maybe you've heard it because I've told it enough that things get around. Um, years ago, when I was working with Neufeld, uh, there was a film that came out called uh, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Yeah with a score by Michael Kamen. So at that time, John and I, we were working for Williams and James Horner. And so John saw Neufeld and he said, how is it possible to write 120 minutes of music in three weeks? Neufeld told John, he said, um, oh, you get other people to do it for you. And John thought about it for a second and he said, oh, I couldn't possibly do that. <laughs> Horner, on the other hand, Horner said, how's it possible to write 120 minutes of music in three weeks? And uh, Neufeld said, you get other people to do it for you. To which James thought, and he said, sounds expensive. And so in those two answers is really where Hollywood lives. Alexander Desplat is more like John. He does a ton of stuff all by himself. In yeah. fact, until recently, he even did all of his laybacks, for God's sake. But that's all by way of saying that um, you get tired of doing other people's work, and that's why I like John, working for him. But by the same token, it's so complete that I think John, but, you know, that's, and that's why I kind of like it. I don't particularly want to orchestrate for John anymore because uh, he's got that cover, and I'm more interested in other things, frankly. Absolutely. Um, but it's, it's fine. It's all fine. Because um, I love him above, uh, I've learned the most from him out of everybody, and mind you, Look, I've, I, I have at least met Aaron Copeland, studied with Gunther Schuller, studied with Lamb Bernstein. Um, Pretty bunch of great people, yeah. Uh, yeah, throughout my life. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I really am a Zalig. And, and so with John, I just can't tell you how much I admire him. Yeah, again, you know, like when we were doing AI, I, there's this arrangement of I've only got eyes for you that has to be in a specific style. And this was generally something John might hand off to me or something. But I remember he said, no, no, I'll do it. And when it came, the style was absolutely perfect. The voicing's perfect for the thing. It's hard to really convey all that he knows. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's a kind of a music school in himself. To touch a little bit upon the, you know, the tradition of the classic Hollywood film score, because uh, John Williams is uh, referred as the, you know, the foremost keeper of that tradition, and he restored that style almost single-handedly with Star Wars, as we were saying before. So, what are the main things or qualities that he took from that approach of of, 
the Korngold and Steiner, Newman, Wuxman. And... Well, I think that's a, that's a really curious question, isn't it? Because it depends on um, um, how keenly you hear. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's like, uh, it's something I know quite a bit about, is that E.T. Um, I remember back when people, uh, when he was doing Boston Pops, that we get parts back from the Boston Symphony. Mm -hmm. They would write on the parts, Hanson, Bartok. They would they would take everything, and here's the here's the thing is that I know the Hanson pretty well because I've, I've had to deal with it, frankly, because mm. of some stupid film I did uh, for somebody, and it was specifically they wanted that. Mm. Okay, they wanted that, and uh, I guess it, it was Tim. Mm. John does Hanson better than Hanson. And, and, and I, can, I can cite a chapter and verse of where the orchestration is cleaned up and where it's clear. And, and, and now, mind you, I'm a specialist. And I'm one of these people that I go and a lot of people hear some orchestration. They'll go, that's great. And I'll go, no, not quite. I mean, I think that there's not that, blah, blah, blah. Because it's, I'm just a specialist. But Williams, he makes it his own by, one, he has his own clear ideas. Two, um, he makes it his own because... I, clearly has ways of hearing substitute harmonies for, you know, like most of his themes are like very simple, but the harmonic context and the linear context is really uh, quite extraordinary. He also does it by having architecture, which most people don't. Most composers think like songwriters. They okay. don't think like composers. So what they think of is how they just repeat a theme and their idea of form is theme and uh, maybe no theme. <laughs> and then we'll repeat my thing. John is one of the few people that sees the architecture and also has a sense of how formal structures like a sequence work differently, whether or not that sequence is a linear one, like in a fugue, and lines that are being connected that sort of go in faster and faster to something that's very big and opens up, or if it's something that's just being more and more condensed as a pedal point that has to have so much energy that releases it and how much harmonic tension has to be in there that has to come out there. He has a sense of how to get all the, uh, Virgil Thompson, uh, when I, when I teach this, he said, Oh, where does an instrument sound the best? And he always said, Oh, in what register does an instrument sound its best? And he says, the cash register. <laughs> and the cash register is a way of thinking of transposition and that that's in the staff. And if you see where John, Everybody, like I was saying earlier, everybody's going to have the climax at the same time. They're going to know what their note does in that climax. And that's how I would say that he, uh, he adopts his own because he's got his own uh, vocabulary. He's been able to incorporate even more classical elements like Bartok. Yeah. Though Korngold, I did uh, this thing for the L.A. Phil a couple of years ago where we did the love scene from uh, Robin Hood. Yeah. What amazes me is how Korngold was actually channeling more Ravel. He atomizes the orchestra rather than having the big orchestra, and then and he goes back and forth between these sort of chamber elements of how he can yeah. make mezzanines and very transparent to the massive thing. And John does that. Most people only have, uh, you know, today we only have massive orchestras, and we only have very rudimentary. Like if you study counterpoint, uh, we're some. If John is fifth species counterpoint with all the. <laughs> dissonant things uh, going on all the time. Yeah. Generally, most film scores today are between first species and second species. And that means that you don't even have to orchestrate anything. I mean, again, we have these block chords and the stuff that is more like hymns all the time.
And we have people recording with 60 cellos and all this kind of nonsense. Yeah. And, and so I would say John, uh, yeah, is a cumulative figure for that tradition, like much like Brahms is. Uh, that's my that's my contention. Yeah. And that just like Brahms and well, just like actually the Ars Nova, once vocal music had to yield to instrumental music and people's ideas change, that's where we are right now. Yeah. The question is. Are we not taking enough of what we learned from before forward? That's my question. Mm. Because it strikes me that no one writes like John anymore. No one, I mean, except for students that can't get a film. And that's what it seems. What are the signature things that make John's music unmistakably his own, according to you? To give you a generalized answer, but, I, but I'm dead serious in this, is that I used, when I was a teacher, I used to teach um, fugue. And whenever you teach counterpoint with students, is that you find out that they're so con concerned with what we can manage the easiest pitch. Because dissonance is easy to re recognize, all this kind of stuff. The trouble is, when you study fugue, it's really rhythmic. 
It's really about feeling the rhythm and the cross rhythms between how the subject and the counter subject interact and all this kind of stuff and the impulse. And that's what I would say about John Williams. What keeps his stuff fresh is that the pitches are great. The harmonies are wonderful and they're uniquely his. I'd say he's got a, where it's hard to recognize is that unlike say James Horner, who had five great tricks, but he repeated those five great tricks all the time. And his signature harmonic stuff is all there in his voicings. John, what I would encourage people, his rhythm, because things don't land on the weak and strong beats like you would expect. And he's always keeping you off. And he also has, again, a beginning, a middle, and an end to every idea. And he also knows how to expand his material. And ultimately, as Earl Hagen once said, who was a um, TV con composer and was a partner with Herb Spencer, knew Herb very well. And, uh, and Earl was an influential in my life. He said, well, Johnny's just got that knack for to get that unforgettable hook. And that's true. Because most people, everybody, it's just amazing to me of how he's able to take something that is very simple and yet branded. And that's a hard thing to do. Yeah. And how to apply this to the, to the drama, to the storytelling also as well. You know, no, it's a, well, it's, it's a gift, but also, look, just another thing to, to the genius of John Williams, according to Earl, back in the day when they would do TV. You have to realize they weren't quick time movies and people didn't necessarily have a moviola. And these guys would develop, uh, supposedly Universal, they could watch like a TV show once, uh, one of these 30-minute things, and then give you a breakdown shot by shot. In other words, they trained themselves not only for the music, but for the drama. Yeah. And how to see it and how to sort of... And, and Williams, um, all I can say is that, and what's instructive too, I mean, if you're being serious about this, and I've, I've never had the time to be serious, Though I would say there's a definite turning point between Towering Inferno and the next score. It's one of these things of that even when I was a kid, you know, and it'd be lost in space and stuff, I'd be going like, oh, Mazorsky, oh, you know, there's Ravel, all, all, you know. And that was nice because we didn't expect much from film music anymore. Right? Yeah. And all I can say is that, like I said, is that when I first came to Hollywood, what was great was that everybody was trying to solve dramatic problems with great music. I don't care if it was Dave Grusin or even when I remember John started Home Alone and I had to go meet with him and I had to bring him the uh, Onager Christmas Cantata. Of course, there's nothing like that in yeah. Home Alone or with uh, Far and Away. I remember, you know, I had to take a bunch of music uh, to sort of show how uh, Nicole Kidman was a rebel. Yeah. And so I kept remembering I played the banjo when I was a kid of, of uh, not Stephen Foster, but Gottschalk. And so I took that in, took a bunch of stuff in. And these guys, they would study music, no music. This is all by way of saying uh, the inspiration was outside and everybody felt like they were trying to bring on something greater. Again, as you may or may not know, they, 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 in the America, in the 1950s, more uh, tickets were sold to symphony concerts than to uh, baseball games. Wow. And the highlight of music in america is probably the 30s and the 40s when the radio station said oh we can now mass media now we have to give uh you know great music and so in those days people found their inspiration from the classics i would say today once hans managed to get a bunch of tropes together around the year 2000 film music developed its own vocabulary yeah and now it's so self-referential to a few scores 
And even with Don Davis, I, I remember with The Matrix, Don is well, like one of the great composers of all time. I mean, certainly one of the most passionate composers I know, in the sense of that he's really into the skill and the craft and all this stuff. Yeah. Even Don would get to the point going, they're talking, so we'll have a whole note. And John never quite gets to that. I mean, but or the whole. And so what I've just noticed in film music, it's become less interesting because um, do the same stupid thing. And they said, you're not, you don't go to the film and you're never surprised. I agree. I agree with you. that there is something interesting happening in the concert uh, music world where we are having some young composers uh, writing specifically more toward the lexicon similar to film music or influenced by film music and while instead of film music is going in a very different direction oh yes well film well i think the thing is is that filmmakers are afraid of music being the narrative and so what they've done is tried to minimize in every way music's power. That now music is basically a, a tone. And you're trying to set up more a tone than having a thematic element. And it's more like you're creating an atmosphere for people to look at the picture. This is why minimalism is always so effective. Yeah. It, it kind of goes, something's going on, but I don't know what, but I'll just watch it. And if you hear things like, uh, say, this past year with the scores, Nicholas Bertel is an expert. I thought it, I thought it scored two. Vice was excellent. I think it scored it, but if Beale Street could tell. Yeah. But are they in the vernacular? Are, are they like uh, opera and ballet? Are they like what we're used to? No. And like I've said, is that for myself, I can truthfully say, with the exception of John Williams, I really haven't bought an album of even anything I've worked on in the past 15 years. Because uh, when you would buy an album, say, back in the day, um, an album could almost have a symphonic structure. Yeah. And the, the individual cues would maybe have different forms. Because, like I tell people, when people write, uh, scenes have forms, writers have forms. There's a point, there's always a, a key point that you should capture. Now, in, when you score, they don't even want those key points. They want it to almost be so, just so nebulous that anything can be. And John, you know, I think he's adapted better than most. Because I think that uh, the score to the post is an example of, mm. I think it's a great score. Uh, for some reason, the Academy didn't think it was a great score. Mm. But, it, but I just think that it's an interesting thing that because Friedhofer, there are certain things um, in orchestration, if I had to say with John, uh, where 
he he opts for clarity, like almost everything. When like when you perform his stuff live, as an orchestrator, I've, Strauss strikes me. There, are th- I, you must know this story better than I do. Of uh, when Toscanini performed one of Strauss's pieces at Salzburg back in the '30s, that uh, Strauss went back to congratulate him and said, you know, uh, Maestro Toscanini. Uh, when uh, I conduct my music, we hear only the good notes. When you conduct my music, sadly, we hear every note. <laughs> and so, in Strauss, it's so, it's really complicated. There's so much music, and there's stuff that you really can't hear at times. John, I would say, if you play it right, there are times when it's, there's supposed to be some chaos. But John is more towards the Stravinsky model of that, uh, like I've said, if you ever hear the Rite of Spring live, actually, and if it's well-performed, you can hear every part. Stravinsky, everything Stravinsky put on the page, you can hear and so I'd say that John took some of the, the clutter from um, out of Strauss, if you will. God forgive me, because, <laughs> because he's such a ge- I always like the other thing I like about Strauss is that he said, I'm a second-rate composer, but I'm a first-rate second-rate composer. <laughs> and, and so I think that John does bring the American sensibility, though I, I would say that Steiner you know, became as American as almost anybody. That's what's so amazing about all this. Film music in Hollywood is so rich that we are still in need of someone who, you know, who can trace all the points and trace back to the to the origins and how it evolved throughout the years. But to to touch upon uh, also your life as a composer, uh, do you think orchestrating for John and for other greats uh, also influenced your own style as a composer? I would say that it's uh, you know it's influenced my style to the degree that I do think that. Um... I, I have certain uh, ticks that I just learned from him, I suppose. And, and oftentimes when I'm asked to write a score, people want something specific. Rodin got to quit making gargoyles and become a great sculptor soon enough. Uh, I'm still the guy that's still making the, everybody else's gargoyles, and generally when I get my own job, somebody wants me to make somebody else's gargoyle. Well, actually, you composed some very fine and distinctive film scores, and I mean, like a Pavilion of Women, which I love.
that's fine. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, that's uh, you, you have to. I'd rather be making that music than no music. Um, but yes, I would say that uh, I went to as uh, Joy and Kay Music Service back in the day when it was really Joy and Kay Music. When everybody's doing everything by hand, the, the scores to Hook stood at least maybe a meter, uh, maybe four, maybe uh, maybe a meter high off the ground, maybe a meter and a half. I mean, it's huge. It came up almost to my chest, and I'm I'm I'm, I'm six feet. Um, and in that whole thing, there in whenever it was performed, there were three note mistakes in the entire score. Talk about proofreading, you know. Well, it's proofreading, also the copyists, and that, and so today with the computer, the the thing to balance this, there are at least three mistakes in every cue. Yeah. But this is my way of saying you you have no idea of how intense everything used to be, right? and it still is. But John, the focus that he brings to anything is amazing, and he's the last of his kind. He truly, I mean, he is truly the last. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, I agree. And I, and that's why I think it's important to, you know, to keep track of this legacy. Very special thanks to Conrad Pope for his generosity and his time spent talking about the legacy of John Williams. We agreed to do another conversation in the future, as the subject is certainly worth exploring even deeper. Thank you for listening. This audio feature is produced by Maurizio Caschetto for the legacyofjohnwilliams.com.